Hallelujah. Christ is risen. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. A special happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. My wife who is here, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, It's a blessing to be back with you here in Tulsa. Last time I was here, it was not nearly as warm and welcoming. And so I'm very grateful for the beautiful weather, not to mention this beautiful gathering we have this morning. Um, I'm preaching today out of the reading from the epistles, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. So I'd like to start just by reading that text for us this morning. It says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. Can I get an amen on that one? But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together this morning. Almighty God, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather in your son's name, to experience your presence, and to be worked on, to be shaped, to be formed by your spirit. We pray that our ears would be sensitive, that we would be Fertile soil, tender, ready to receive an implanted word this morning. To the glory of your son's name, we pray. Amen. This morning, the title of my sermon is The Longing and the Letting. The Longing and the Letting. And I was thinking about uh, the book by Ronald Rollheiser called The Holy Longing. And he starts off that book talking about spirituality. And the idea of something that's spiritual or spirituality has been increasing in popularity in our culture for probably the last 30 to 40 years or so. And uh, I think the problem we have with that is it's a very slippery term, right? So this word spiritual or spirituality uh, on some level expresses the hope that people have to make a connection with the metaphysical, with something that is beyond matter, beyond what we can uh, rationalized beyond what we can measure by science. And I think that's that sort of the, as we get to the end of modernism, as we get to the end of this idea that reality is strictly matter, there's a, this longing for spirituality. There's this longing for the metaphysical. I think the problem is, though, a lot of this ends up happening in a commodified way. It's, it's like we're looking for energy that would be available to us if we could just 
get the right information or use the right steps, and, and that always ends up in buying the right book, right? And so we even are promoting capitalism in our spirituality at that point. And, and I think the problem we get even beyond that is not only is it commodified, it, but spirituality becomes deeply impersonal. A lot of the language that's out there in what I would call secular spirituality or even some new age spirituality is very impersonal. And there's talk about energy. There's talk about life force. And it's being channeled by individuals. It's being channeled by a person who has a personal sense of need or a personal sense of longing, and they get their hands on information that they use to sort of increase or improve their state in life, their quality of life. And all of this conveniently happens on their own terms and in their own spaces, at least much of the time. And so I'm wondering also to what extent this sort of spirituality is so popular because it's offered over and against organized religion. You see, you can take control of your own spiritual life apart from structures, apart from traditions, and quite honestly, let's say, apart from the risk that is involved with people. Because if you haven't figured this out yet, certainly on Mother's Day, all the moms in the room know it is risky to love people. It is risky to trust people. It's risky to engage people. And I'm, I'm concerned because I think this idea of personal spirituality is not only commodified, it's not only impersonal, but it's highly individualistic. It's a way for us to take control. And the people I've encountered, and this is just my experience, who gravitate towards quote-unquote spirituality are almost always turned off by the church, and almost always rightfully so, because we make a mess of things. It's how we roll. We're, we're a beautiful mess. That's what we are. But the, the fact is it's vice versa, right? Because growing up in fundamentalism, growing up in Pentecostalism, we were equally phobic of anything New Age, Okay, and so uh, we would be in the, uh, even if we use the word meditate, which is a Bible word, we'd have to qualify what we meant. We're not emptying ourselves, right? We're filling ourselves up. It's not new age. We promise you. You know, even Selah in the Psalms is a problem for those of us who are scared of new age. And so let me just right now just say, I didn't come all the way to Tulsa to bash new age. I didn't come all the way here to talk just about this sort of thing. But uh, I do think that there's something quite intriguing about the relentless quest for the metaphysical. This relentless quest that has managed to work its way, almost like a weed through a concrete sidewalk. It's managed to work its way through the rationalism, the scientism of modernity, of Western culture. Here we are, 300 years on, in the project of reason, and there's still this thing inside of human beings that says there has to be something beyond this. This is beautifully described by Henry David Thoreau, who's not associated with Christianity per se. Listen to what he says. We are fired into life with a madness that comes from the gods and which would have us believe that we can have a great love we can perpetuate our own seed and contemplate the divine. 
And of course, this is coming from the Romantic era, right? This is coming from that time in Western history where we started to push back against rationalism a little bit. And I think the text that we just heard from 1 Peter lines up with this beautifully. It speaks to this very issue, but it does so in a way that is utterly foreign and possibly offensive to Western sensibilities. I say foreign and offensive because Peter's suggested goal here this goal that he said we would grow into salvation, it's not, it's not that that's off-putting, but how he suggests we would grow into salvation is the problem. Because his suggestion here is that it cannot be commodified, it is not impersonal, and it is not individualistic at all. Christian spirituality, and I think it's fair to use that phrase, there is such a thing because Jesus told us in the gospel that God is spirit. And it seemed in John 14, if we kept reading and if we bump over to John 16, Jesus makes it clear that his ascension, his departure is going to release God's spirit in the earth. So I think the term Christian spirituality is fair, but it is not to be conflated with general spirituality because even though the goal is that we would grow into and we would flourish as spiritual beings the fact is how we get there is not through commodification it's not a product you can buy it's not five steps you can implement and it is certainly not impersonal his name is jesus okay And it is not individualistic. It cannot be pursued. Authentic Christian spirituality cannot be pursued on our own. It's not possible. And so I want to start just quickly with this idea of growing into salvation. I have to start here because this challenges the ideas of salvation that I was given as a young person, that I was given growing up in the church, the son of a preacher. When I was talked about, ta- taught about salvation, it was something I received. I received salvation. And once I got it, I was saved. We even sang songs like, I've got it. I've got it. And I do think we receive salvation, so don't get nervous. I do think salvation is something we receive, but I think it's more than that. Salvation is not merely a status. The scriptures would suggest to us that salvation might also be a sort of space that we explore. It might be a sort of space that we fill out over the course of our lives. Maybe it's like when you're a kid and your parents buy you shoes that are intentionally too big for your feet. Did anybody have that experience? Okay. My wife will tell you, I will always try to buy them kids shoes that are way too big for their feet to the point I'll hurt your feet buying them too big because I want you to have room to grow into those shoes. My parents never bought me shoes that fit right because they weren't going to come back in six months and have to buy me another pair of shoes. It's called good stewardship. The sad news is I think a lot of us, when we got saved, quote unquote, we bought a shoe that fit perfectly. We bought a shoe that came right to the end of our toes as they were in that moment. And we wonder why there's pain. What if salvation was not merely a status we acquire or possess? What if salvation is a reality that is infinitely roomy, 
and it's waiting to be explored and to be inhabited. Psalm 118, verse 5, might offer a better explanation into what happens at conversion initially, or maybe when we say the sinner's prayer. Listen to Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I call to the Lord. Let's stop there for just one minute. How many of you had some sort of crisis that led you to the point of reaching out, crying out to God in prayer, saying, save me? Just raise a hand so I know how many people are in here with me. Okay, mine, I was five years old. My crisis, I was five. So I just didn't want to go to hell. So in my distress, look at this. I called on the Lord, and, but look at this. It doesn't say the Lord answered me and fixed my problem. It says this, the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. He set me in a broad place. Please remember, the life of sin, and I'm not talking about sins, the life of sin, the life that we have determined to run on our own terms is a small, constrictive, limiting, suffocating life. And the life of the Spirit, Jesus said the Spirit is like the wind. And it blows and you know not where. How could we be in that sort of life of the Spirit and be constricted the way we so often are? No, salvation is coming into a broad place. Growth is dynamic. It implies change. When salvation is experienced, when it is realized faithfully, it is not static. It, you cannot stay where you are now Moving forward, you will leave this building today different. You will leave this building today different. Either having recept, received what God is trying to do in you and through you or not. I love the words from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You're probably familiar with them. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's that broad place, right? But look at this. And all of us, all of us, you're not getting away this morning. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as through, as though reflected in a mirror, we, have, we all of us are being transformed. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. All of us are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. I'm glad that it's done in degrees. <laughs> we couldn't handle more than that. It's done in gradation. But God is always looking to move you from the goodness and the glory you know now into a greater glory. That's the growth and the transformation Peter's talking about when he says grow into salvation. So let me ask you some questions. How are you being transformed right now? What is God doing in your life? What things is the Spirit pressing on in your life to move you into another degree of glory? And are you fighting him? Are you letting God nudge you? Woo you to another degree of glory. And here's maybe a more troubling question. What glory are you going to have to leave to get to the next one? All of us want to go from the bad thing to the glorious thing. 
All of us want to go from the hard place to the smooth place. All of us want to go from the valley to the mountaintop. But when you're in a good place, when you're in a comfortable place, and God says, let's go to another glory, what do you do with that? Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great fathers of the church, said this, For this is truly perfection, never to stop growing toward what is better and never placing any limit on perfection. And if this isn't challenging enough, Peter tells us that one of the ways that we grow into salvation is by longing for pure spiritual milk. This is the longing. To get to this place, we have to be longing like newborn infants. That even makes it a little bit more troublesome. And this is where I think Peter loses everybody who's interested in spirituality, certainly Westerners. You see, because there's probably no more demographic I can imagine. There's no group of people more helpless, more ignorant, more inexperienced, and generally powerless than newborn infants. And Peter says, if you're going to get somewhere in this salvation thing, you've got to be like a newborn infant, and you've got to long for spiritual milk. Here's what I think we need to consider. Dependence and holy desire, they are the way to and the essence of Christian maturity. Dependence and holy desire, this longing, it's how we get toward and how we continue to flourish in Christian maturity. This idea that somehow we'll be satisfied to the point that we no longer hunger and no longer thirst is not going to help us. We have to go about this like newborn infants. In a culture that prizes expertise, in a culture that prizes power, in a culture that prizes competence, this is discouraging. Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite teachers, unfortunately just in books though, he says this, There are no experts in the company of Jesus. We are all beginners. We will never, there is no notch. There's no badge. There's no medal that's going to let you get out of this status of beginner when it comes to Jesus. The condition of longing eradicates any illusions we have that somehow we've got it all together. Nobody in this room wants to lack. Nobody wants to come across as desperate. But what is Peter saying? Like a baby crying out. It's beautiful for Mother's Day, isn't it? It's one of the ways that we look at mothers and we see not only the beauty of the church, but we see the beauty of Jesus. You remember Jesus in the Gospels presents himself as a mother. In Matthew 23, he looks over Jerusalem and like a mother, longed to bring them into his care. 
We have to have this posture that is so countercultural, so cuts against the very grain of who we are as people, but it is the heart of Christian maturity. It is the heart of growth in Christ-likeness that we cry out consistently like newborn infants. And maybe this is the genius of God. It's not so much that he satisfies us, although he does, but that he's always awakening new desires in us for him. He will always satisfy, but he will always leave you wanting more. That's how he functions. That's why he said that those who hunger and thirst are blessed. They will be satisfied, but they are blessed. It's helpful to remember remember that the epistle, 1 Peter, is written to followers of Jesus who are suffering for their willingness to follow him. They are outcasts. They are living on the margins. They've been socially demoted. And I'm guessing they might have been looking for power. They might have been looking for assertiveness. They might have been looking for solutions. And Peter says early in this letter, hey, I need you to be like newborn infants. Thanks, Peter. That's not what we were looking for. I need you longing for pure milk. This is not commodification. This is communion. An infant does not go to his nursing mother and ask if she takes a debit card. There's communion. There's bonding. This sense of communion is brought out even more clearly than what I see as the second movement. The longing and now the letting. In verse 5, we're we're told that, that as living stones, we are to let to let ourselves be built. And this is where we enter the tension of being passive, of being acted upon. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think there are many of us in the room that we are proactive and we like to take initiative and have some sort of ambition and get things done. And Peter's saying, now, not only do I want you to long like newborn infants, I want you to passively let God do something to you. Thank you. Now I'm just sitting here waiting. The longing attacks our complacency. The longing attacks our complacency, but the letting attacks our carnal ambition. For every person in the room this morning who's just fine with their spiritual life as it is for every person in the room who says, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, and I'm worried about all this stuff. Peter says, no, you have to long like a newborn infant for spiritual milk. You have to long for it. For every person in the room this morning who's got a plan, who's got intentions, who's got dreams, says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z by the time I'm 30. For every one of you, Peter says, whoa, 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 let yourselves be built. The longing is for spiritual milk, but the letting is for a spiritual house. Yes. This is a, a wild juxtaposition. I think it's, 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 it's echoed in Hebrews chapter 4. Just listen to these couple of verses. So then, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. That sounds good. I like the idea of ceasing from labors. But then look at the next line. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. The fact is, we are letting God act on us in ways that are bigger than us. Bigger than we can imagine. The living stones that we prayed about this morning, not the dead weight. The living stones are part of a spiritual house. We are not the house. We're part of the house. This cuts against individualistic spirituality that suggests if you engage in certain individual practices, you will achieve spiritual fulfillment. And Peter's saying if you want to grow into salvation, you have to let God build you into a house. You have to be a living stone that will be placed next to another living stone, under another living stone, over another living stone, to create space for the Spirit. Space for God. And this is where we can find true significance. We find true significance. If I see a, a, a rock in a field, I don't know how many I've seen that I've never even paid attention to. But those same rocks, if they're assembled to form a cathedral, bring visitors by the tens of thousands. So many of us are concerned about our rock and our condition. And God is saying, I have dreams and plans for you that are much bigger than your imagination, but they require you to let me do something to you. Let me put you in a context that makes you more significant than you'd ever be on your own. God's dreams for his people are on the grandest of scales. Culture, especially in the West, thinks of communal things and contextual things as diminishing my individuality. No, it's how our individuality finds true significance. It's not through asserting ourselves, but it is in surrendering ourselves that God's dreams for us come true. He wants to transform us. He wants to work on us have to let him do it. To the extent that we grow into salvation, we become capable of representing, representing, representing Jesus to the world. And this is what all of us were created to do. We were created to walk around the world the way that Adam and Eve walked around the garden before the fall. Growing into salvation is growing into that. I think on some level it's fair to say that. This is what priests do. Priests, a kingdom of priests that I look at, we exist to mediate the presence of God to the world. Well, we can't represent him unless we let him form us in these powerful ways. We have to let God feed us. We have to let God build us in order that. That's, I love that verse in the ninth verse of 1 Peter 2. In order that, you can do certain things. If we're not longing for pure spiritual milk like newborn infants, if we're not letting God build us into a spiritual house, we are not going to be effective. We're not going to be able to authentically proclaim his mighty works to the world in ways that are compelling, in ways that are beautifully subversive. We can't do that if we insist on an individual, commodified, impersonal spirituality. 
We're not going to do this if we are walking in shoes that fit us perfectly. We've got to have this spacious, roomy salvation. I love that verse 3 in 1 Peter 2 is placed between the longing and the letting. The sense of the language here is that Peter's audience has tasted. I know that the translation says, if you have. It's sort of like, uh, well, if you came to church this morning. Well, clearly you came to church this morning. So he's, he's, he's suggesting to them uh, through the grammar here that these people have tasted that the Lord is good. We aren't being invited into this process of growing into salvation strictly on the basis of theory or abstraction. This is very important. Too much of our Christianity veers toward ancient Gnosticism, like it's this secret abstract wisdom and these ideas that are animating us. We are not primarily people of ideas. We are primarily people of a man. His name is Jesus. He is the one who anchors us, tethers us, centers us, grounds us, and calls us is Jesus. And it is very much important that we taste and see that Jesus is good. He doesn't say, if you know that he's good. If you've tasted. It's very experiential. Worship is not meant to be the equivalent of spiritual theological education. Christian worship always has been and always will be in its purest form an encounter with the divine that in some deep and mysterious way forms us, shapes us, confronts us, challenges us, heals us. It is not abstract. It's not theory. It's life. His words, what does he say? They are It's not a private affair. It's a community. These are people who have tasted. I'm so grateful for the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit is that person of the Godhead who makes the Godhead truly experiential for all of us who follow Jesus because there is a physicality to the life of the Spirit. There is a physicality to the life of the Spirit, because it empowers us to enter into the longing and the letting. As Bishop Ed says so often, we are not brains on a stick. I don't know if you've heard him say that. He says it to me, Mark, we are not brains on a stick. Yes, sir. We are not brains on a stick. And at times, we need to physically experience the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure many of you in this room this morning have had moments where physically you've felt the presence of God. You've had moments where you don't know why you're crying, physical tears, but they're running down your face. And it's the presence of God on you. You don't even identify the emotion you're feeling in the moment. And it's the Holy Spirit and you are tasting You're not just knowing, you're tasting that the Lord is good. Some of us in the day have spent time at an altar. Hands up raised, sometimes in our crazier settings, falling flat on our backs and what have you. But we physically have felt like we stuck our finger in a socket. 
That happened to me for the first time when I was in college, and I didn't go to Bible college. It was the most, one of the most precious gifts God gave me because up until that moment, my knowledge of God was theory. But when I encountered the Holy Spirit, it became incarnational. It became embodied. Taste. But this is why I'm also grateful for sacramental Christianity. I need it because I refuse to live dependent on my feels. The feels are great, and I pray many feels for you over the course of your life. But the feels can be addictive in inappropriate ways, and they can be misled and manipulated. But the table, the spirit experiences are precious, but the table... The table that we're about to come to this morning ensures that we do consistently taste that the Lord is good. You will have moments, you will have fireworks shows in the spirit, but you'll have the fire at the table. You'll have those moments in God where you have all the feels, and I pray them for you, and they're precious. Don't be afraid of them, or be afraid, but don't let the fear keep you away from them, okay? But you can't cook a meal over fireworks, You can't warm yourself by fireworks. You need fire. You need that consistent burning. You need that consistent presence. And the table of the Lord that we come to every week ensures that whether I feel it or not, I'm tasting that the Lord is good. Whether my heart is stirred or not, John Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. Some days it's just strange. It's not strangely warm, but I want to know that I'm tasting that the Lord is good. I'm so grateful for this table that he's given us. It's for our good and for the good of our neighborhoods and our jobs that we walk into this week with a deeper, renewed sense of longing for spiritual milk like infants. We need to be adults who are radically desiring And radically dependent. But we also need to walk out of this place letting God move us and shape us. Letting God act on us in ways that bring us more fully into his purposes. And it all starts at this table. The longing and the letting requires trust. But it begins with tasting. St. Theophan the Recluse. I want that name for myself at some point. (laughs) He says, when going to the holy mysteries, which we're about to do, go with simplicity of heart. In full faith that you will receive the Lord within yourself. And with the proper reverence toward this, what your state of mind should be after this, leave it to the Lord himself. Many desire ahead of time to receive this or that from Holy Communion and then not seeing what they wanted. They are troubled. And even their faith in the power of the mystery is shaken. Has anybody here ever been disillusioned with God because he didn't cooperate with what you thought he should have done? This is what he's getting at. He's saying don't come to the mystery that way because the fault at that point lies not with the mystery but with superficial assumptions. Do not promise yourself anything. Leave everything to the Lord like a newborn infant, asking a single mercy from him. 
to strengthen you in every kind of good so that you will be acceptable to him. The fruit of communion most often has a taste of sweet peace in the heart. Sometimes it brings enlightenment to thought and inspiration to one's devotion to the Lord. Sometimes almost nothing is apparent. But afterward, in one's affairs, there is a noted great strength and steadfastness in the diligence one has promised. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I pray in these few moments right now that we would hear the call of your spirit to leave whatever glory we may be in right now for another glory. We would hear the call of your spirit if we're in a bad place right now. We'd hear the call of the spirit to say, my dreams for you are bigger than this. Long for spiritual milk and let me build you. Desire and surrender. Let there be grace on us. So 